I'm Charlie Rossiter for Poetry Spoken Here. Henry David Thoreau once said, The poet cherishes his chagrins and sets his sighs to music. Life's better when poetry is part of it. And this podcast is your invitation to let poetry speak to you. Today we're going to be talking with Albert DiGenova. He is the author of several books, Backbeat, A Good Hammer, Postcards to Jack, and The Bluing Hour. He's lived in the Chicago area his whole life and is a co-founder of the magazine After Hours, a literary magazine that focuses on Chicago poetry and Chicago poets. He also, in the summer, teaches a week-long seminar at The Clearing in Door County, Wisconsin. So, Al, you've done these great things, and I'm really glad that you're here so we can all hear your poems. Well, I'm really happy to be here, Charlie. I think this is, this is a great endeavor, and I'm, I'm really proud to be part of it. So, where do we start? <laughs> With whatever poem you feel like doing. Okay. Well, I'm going to read a, a newer poem that's called Redemption. It's Easter, and I'm looking for resurrection in the orange jelly beans. The stars have aligned this season. The movable feasts have converged for a synchronicity of faith. It's Easter, and I want to drink coffee with you sitting two fingers away from me. I want to read you the poem I wrote as you slept. I want to be forgiven for the toy truck I stole when I was six years old, forgiven by all the yous of so many dark nights. It's Easter, and I will celebrate my secret movable feast on Capri, sipping limoncello, that place of no regret. It's Easter, but it didn't rain at 3 p.m. on Good Friday as the good sisters once promised, as I so hoped it would, so needing reassurance, those youthful myths. It's Easter again, and our family rituals have changed, this year of saving loose change. I'm on the bottom rung looking up and dragging a full trash bag. Maybe I don't need to reach the top. The gutters can stay clogged. It's Easter, and I'm placing jelly beans end to end, starting at the garage, marking a new path, one half of an inch at a time. Do another one. Do another one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this poem, I'm, I'm proud to say, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize this past year. And... Um, not sure if it's going to win or not, but it doesn't matter. The nominating is the good part. Uh, this one is called Among Friends. I pour the red wine to each guest a personal toast. The eye-to-eye salute, the glass-to-glass clink, the dull sound of full crystal to full crystal that does not chime. This night, the wine is dark. A fine vintage that asks ever so discreetly, between the laughs and stories, who here this night has ever hated the morning? Who among this group of friends has thought, tonight I step over the line in front of the train? Whose chair sinks into the carpet having slipped your mooring? Easier to drink in silence, pretending to listen, staring into your friend's wife's eyes, than resisting the nagging urge to watch this repartee from the top of the stairs. Who steps into the bathroom to stare into his own wine eyes? How many bottles between dinner and morning? There are those among us empty already. Red rings stain the white satin tablecloth. 
so many distant planets. Was that a real party? Well, you know, it's pieces and parts of things, you know, but yeah, there's, there's those times at parties when you just want to kind of step away, you know, (laughs) yeah, where the, uh, where the banter just gets to be a little more than, more than you're really up for, you know? Well, it's a good time to be a poet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the next morning after the wine, you start thinking about what it felt like the night before. (laughs) Right. And where did did the uh, redemption poem come from? Um, Well, you know know how poems start sometimes just with a crazy idea. And the, the original crazy idea was, you know, I'm looking for orange jelly beans. And, you know, I wrote that down in my notebook and said... Okay, how does this work? You know, and um, and then I started. You know, then other. You know, the other emotion behind this was just a, at a point when I was not working and looking for a job and feeling like I was starting over. So you know, you start putting all these pieces together, and it happened to be a year when when the Easter's all aligned. The movable feasts of Greek Easter, Western Easter, and Passover were all the same date, so it was like everything aligned and. And that's kind of where the poem started from, you know, placing jelly beans one at a time and, you know, making a path. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. It's, it's, it's an interesting bit of, of an idea about poetry or, or advice to a, yeah. would, a person who wants to write poems. That go ahead and start somewhere and see where you spin off. Yeah, to. truly you have, you don't always know where the poem's coming from. It's in there. Yeah. And there's some little spark that gets it going, and then you, you know, that, that's my style. Is I like to let the poem find itself, find its own voice, you know. Yeah. And a kind of every poem has its own rhythm, and you know, let the line, you know, start to shape itself, and you, you don't always know where it's going to go. <laughs> there's also a lot in there. So would, did that happen over? Many sessions writing this poem is it that kind of poem? Um, well, this it went through a couple of revisions. Um, but a, most of the images were in there from the beginning. Hmm. I, I I changed a few details here and there. You know, the orange jelly beans at the beginning lost their color at the end, and and there was more repetition of it's Easter. You know, as more of right. a, a, a chorus. But I, it, it felt like there was too much of that, so I cut it down a lot on. You know, a little tightening here mm-hmm. and there. But most of the ideas kind of were they the were original. There. Yeah, oh. from in the original draft. It was cool. a matter of crafting those those ideas. Yeah. All right, do another one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when you write poems, a lot, there are st- everybody has certain recurring issues in their lives, and you know, one of one thing I write about a lot is my father, and, and it's just the way it is. <laughs> and this is um, this is another poem I'm proud of. This was uh, placed in the Allen Ginsberg Poetry uh, Contest that's sponsored by Patterson Literary Review. Um, so, you know, you know how it is. You enter contest time after time and you finally win <laughs> or come yeah. close to winning. Anyway. Yeah. So this poem is called One Sixtieth of a Second. He is almost out of the frame. Maybe he is hesitating, trying not to step into the picture, leaning on the back door with one hand. The other hand in his pocket, looking down, not at the camera, not at the aging woman in the backyard of this four-flat apartment house. He may not want to interrupt her. The woman is sitting on a simple wood bench, surrounded by potted Easter lilies and hydrangea, which she is cutting. The flower pots are decorated with foil and bows, 
perhaps leftovers from her church. The kitchen windows are open to let in the late spring air. She wears no sweater over her plain apron and short-sleeved house dress. She is busy, careful, focused on her work. He is young, 19 or 20, already dressed beyond the means of this simple backyard, this working-class home in 1950 Chicago. His white dress shirt hangs open, tails out of dark dress pants, sleeves rolled up. He isn't looking at his mother or at the photographer, who is probably his older brother. She is at the center of the picture, unaware of the camera. She can't see the son who keeps his distance, waiting to walk through the frame. He could easily reach around the corner of the building and touch her. Black and white, shadow upon shadow, a frozen one-sixtieth of a second. What little illumination there is. He is my father. This is as well as I know him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great ending there. Uh, this uh, this yeah. poem was actually an ekphrastic poem. It was, And that's, you know, when you write to a piece of artwork, well, there, there was a photograph that one of my cousins had found in... Oh. in uh, well, she li- well, she lived next door to my grandmother and in... Her mother's things, she just found this old picture. It's just a really kind of interesting picture. And, yeah. uh, you know, so this poem was written in reaction to that photograph. Yeah. That's cool. And as you mentioned, this is a prose poem. Uh, how'd you make the decision to go that way? You know, I've been writing more prose poems these days. I oh. think, you know, my, my writing is just going to that narrative side mm. of my brain. And it it's, it felt more like, that was the right shape for this poem in order to describe that photograph to be more in a, you know, more prose-ish sentences, though I tried to make it feel very present tense as if it was right. happening, you know. Yeah, but you wanted to give the story of the picture. Yeah, how I saw the, the you know, the images unfolding in the, in the photograph. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Another one? This, this poem is a little different. This one is, uh, this is a love poem. Um, and it, this poem came from the whole idea of um, child mind or beginner mind. Um, and I was reading a, a book by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and he, he goes very heavily into this whole idea of the child mind, being a beginner. So this one is called, O Holy Naked Robe. In your most naked robe, my endless curiosity. O Holy, these thirty years of thick and thin hips, of the full moon of pregnancy, the blue-white pearls of nursing nipples, perfume of lavender baths, musk of garden days, full breasts, those rising suns of infinite morning, those full ladles of red wine midnight the ebbing, flowing delta of life where I sing my blues of salvation. Naked arms cradling baskets of bread, naked hands that peel apples, the navel where tears pull the overflowing years, the stretch of smooth calf, pointing toes, their painted purple vanity, the tireless spine mapping our journey, breath of skin, a walk in sun-warm cedars, oh, holy naked robe, I am a mere beginner beginning. Mm. You do nice love poems. Does, does your wife like uh, 
Like it when you write love poems? Yeah, she does. I'm just curious. Yeah, she she does, and then on the other hand, she you know, then she feels like I'm telling her whole life, and when I stand yeah. up at a microphone or put this on a piece of paper and get it published someplace, but she likes it well enough. Yeah, she, she likes. Knows it well you're enough. an artist. You yeah, gotta do. She understands. Well, she's used to it now. So I've been doing it for so long. <laughs> so she, yeah, she just doesn't like if I get into too much detail. But well, you know. <laughs> You know, what are you going to do when you're a poet? You have to put a little gotta detail tell the in. truth. you got to tell the, the story. That's right. <laughs> tell it the way you see it. Yeah. True, true. And um, this poem is, uh, it, it's just a, a true story. And I, when I wrote it, um, it really happened. It happened one night up in, up in Door County. Um, and then... We were up there at Thanksgiving, and um, which is hunting season. The reason it's hunting season because there's deer everywhere running around. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote it. At the, you'll, I don't know if you'll notice the feel, but I was I was reading Hemingway at the time, and I was trying to channel a little bit of his short sentence idea. And you're listening to poetry spoken here. That's Albert Di Genova reading his poems for us. Thanksgiving poem. Young Buck drags his hindquarters, eyes of escape, across the unlit road. Car ahead of us had swerved, turned off the road. Our friends out of their car now, shaking, pacing. Oh, geez, oh, geez, in a field behind the struggling, the useless legs. Call the police, an accident, flashlight, one shot, heaving, steamy breath. Second shot to the head, silence, then policeman pulls the carcass to the gravel shoulder. Highway crew's morning pickup. Again the moonlight, white frost, empty fields. Further up the highway, a country tavern. Our friend's son, bartender, and chef serves us whiskey, no ice, no flourish. His friends have gone for the carcass. The precious meat cannot be left to spoil. Out back, the buck is dressed, the tenderloin removed and fried with onions and carrots. A white plate is passed along the bar for sharing. Thinly sliced, dark-colored venison, one simple fork. The plate reaches us. We hesitate a moment. The taste is wild. It tastes like running. You really, uh, and Eastlander's last lines, that's another one that just really hits you. You, you know, I've always, I, I've, actually I focus on the endings. I always feel like that's where you have to leave Be that strong. punch. Yeah, that's yeah. where you got to leave that stomach punches oh, at the, yeah. in the last yeah. lines. I remember the first time I heard you read this out of reading, and it's just, yeah, very visceral. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, it's true. You know, this, it actually happened. Yeah. You know? And uh, it was Ralph Marie, we were talking about who mm. the poet laureate of Door County who was driving ahead of us and he happened to hit a deer and, mm. and it was you know his son you know I mean when you're a country person you don't leave a carcass on the road <laughs> you go get it yeah especially if it, you know it's fresh and, <laughs> it's <right>. and free <laughs> you know I think that's the yeah, key really the key is that it's free sure <laughs> but you know the, and I also get the idea everybody says oh it tastes gamey I always wondered what that meant and then mm-hmm. I tried to figure it out and I I said, well, that's what it means. It tastes like running. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, one more. Sure. 
this um, I want to read one more uh, poem it's from it's from my book uh, a good hammer oh, yeah we can fit that <laughs> the um, maybe we'll do two more both both from a book a good hammer um, this one is called walk with me At 55, my knee hurts when I run, but I can walk. I can walk from here to Dallas to New Orleans, from the Coliseum to the Spanish Steps. Hold my hand. Only our shoes will be the worse for wear. Your questions are always a step ahead of me. Whisper in my ear. Let's keep walking. Only 10,000 paces from here to midnight to the breathless ancient pond. We'll listen for Basho's frog. <laughs> and um, they, you know, I, in this in this book, a good hammer, I, I make reference to Basho's frog quite often. as a, it's kind of a recurring image in here, and it's just that moment of you know of truly being awake and aware. And uh, I'll do one more from a good hammer. It's the title poem, and um, also a recurring theme in my work is uh, father son poems. This is a good hammer. Blessed are the splinters, the little cuts that never bleed, the dark blue-black fingernails. At 53, you long for more hours as a carpenter, nailing and planing, a pencil behind your ear, sawdust on your shoes, the clean, sweet smell of fresh-cut lumber in the basement, the backyard, in the new attic bedroom, eager for that brief moment when you close the toolbox and exhale the good and strong of completion. Something your sons can sit on, climb up, or walk under. What is a marketing manager anyway? A son should see his father's work, see that a sound joint fitted in the wind will hold against rain and hail and time, should remember his father's sweat, learn the only tool he needs, finally, is a good hammer, love he can hold in his hand. Mm. That's an interesting concept, the importance of the tangible. Yeah, things, yeah. And, the, you know, and the idea of, uh, I think a, a lot of the idea of that came from Robert Bly's book, um, The Iron, Iron Giant, is it? Iron John? Iron John, that's yeah. it, yeah. And he talks about how, um, you know, young boys don't, in, in our day and age, don't see what their fathers do for a living. They, you know, the right. father goes to work, they come home, they never really know what their father does. You know, so that's kind of where the idea yeah. came from. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, Al, thanks for reading this nice variety of poems. And I'm uh, really glad you could do this. Yeah, well, thank you, Charlie. This was fun. It's a really great way to just sit and share poetry you know now we'll put it out there for a few million people to eavesdrop on <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah we've been listening to albert dijon on poetry spoken here now we're going to turn to a topic that's particularly relevant with an audio format and that's the idea of how a poem is read the idea that the way a poem is presented can influence how we think and feel about the poem, how we respond to the poem. I came across an example of this recently with a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, familiar to most of us because it's often covered in school.
we think of it as We Real Cool. The actual title is The Pool Players, Seven at the Golden Shovel. And I had always heard this poem as these young guys in the pool hall looking you in the face and saying, hey, I'm cool. But then I heard Gwendolyn Brooks talk about this poem, and she said it was, to her, a statement of presence, a statement of I am. She likened it to Kilroy was here. Kilroy was here was a little bit of graffiti character with the words Kilroy was here right next to it that appeared all over the world back around the time of World War II. So she didn't really hear it as in your face, but here's the way I heard it. We, real cool. We, left school. We, lurk late. We, strike straight. We, sing sin. We, thin gin. We, jazz june. We, die soon. I found a recording of Gwendolyn Brooks saying a few more things about this poem and reading it. I wrote it because I was passing by a pool hall in my community one afternoon during school time, and I saw therein a uh, little bunch of boys, I say here in this poem, seven, and they were shooting pool. But instead of asking myself, why aren't they in school? I asked myself, I wonder how they feel about themselves. And just perhaps they might have considered themselves contemptuous of the establishment, or at least they wanted to feel that they were contemptuous of the establishment, might want to thumb their noses at the establishment. And I represented the establishment with the month of June, which is a nice, gentle, non-controversial, enjoyable, pleasant, fragrant month that everybody loves. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk light, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz june, we die soon. That was the voice of Gwendolyn Brooks. The way a poem is read has an important influence on how we receive it and understand it have another example here, a poem by Kenneth Rexroth. Rexroth was a major figure in the San Francisco Renaissance back in the middle of the 20th century. He spent a lot of time translating the quiet, contemplative poems of the Japanese and Chinese poets. This poem is called No Word. The trees hang silent in the heat. Undo your heart. Tell me your thoughts, what you were and what you are. Like bells, no one has ever rung. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. The music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. Spoken Here is more than a podcast. 
You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. And for more about today's show and other podcasts as well as our blog, visit the website, which is poetryspokenhere.com. If you would like to submit your poem to be read during one of our future shows or to give us a suggestion for future podcast topics, you can write to us at poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.